The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Okay. Welcome back to the second half where uh, we'll talk about multi-sequence alignment uh, for starters. And I said that I would show this slide again. This time, instead of, before it was to introduce how we would go about getting an empirical substitution matrix from distant related protein sequences, such as distant related immunoglobulin family members. Now, uh, we would like to ask, how did we get that multi-sequence alignment? This is one way of thinking about it as a generalization of the two-dimensional array that we had before, where we would have, um, say, two sequences, one horizontal and one vertical. Now, the third dimension is the third sequence. Um, this gets harder and harder to visualize as the number of sequences you put in, but let's, let's think about it in three dimensions for just a moment here. And you can, uh, when you have a multiple alignment, you can think of it as dy dynamic programming on this hyper lattice, and that the indels uh, for any pairwise combination may not be optimal for the triple. Here's, and let's go beyond triple, but to a, a very simple binucleotide alignment. And we will uh, say that this is the optimum multiple alignment, you can see here that the multiple examples of AT anchor the A and T as being uh, separate positions, even though normally if you just did a pairwise alignment with a high uh, gap penalty, there would be a tendency to line the A up with the T. Right? You would not, in, not have these canceling indels, but in the context of the, of the multi-alignment, you now have a different interpretation. And so we want to um, generalize the kind of algorithms we've been using. And again, this will be a recursive algorithm where the score of a uh, two-character string is defined in terms of the maximum of various shorter strings. Um, so at the very top is the case where we have no insertions, the simplest case, where we have no insertions or deletions, and we just ask, what is the score of having a V... Uh, SA, that is to say, this triple single amino acid comparison. It's just like what was the score of having a V substituted for an S, now we're asking a V substituted for an S substituted for an A. Now the number of different cases we have here, before it was three for a, gl a global alignment, which was uh, a K being the number of sequences was two, now K is three for a three-way comparison, and all possible subsets is 2 to the k uh, minus 1, uh, in this case, so it's um, 7. So 7 cases, and you can just walk through them. You can see um, the first one is no insertions or deletions. The next three are two insertions or deletions in all possible, in the three different ways that can happen. And then the last three are one, ins uh, uh, one placeholder, one of these dashes which means that uh, the other two sequences have 
insertions relative to the one dash. So this is seven cases for a three-way comparison. Now, as k grows, then both the, 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 the space complexity, the amount of the amount of lattice points that you have to store somewhere, either in RAM or disk or somewhere, uh, grows by uh, n to the k power, where the sequences are roughly n long and the number of sequences is k. Now, to compute each of those nodes, uh, well, I mean, will we'll be on the order of 2 to the k power because that's the number of, uh, that, that's r related to, remember I said that uh, the number of subsets in general is going to be 2 to the k minus 1, or about roughly 2 to the k. And uh, so the time complexity is you have to do 2 to the k comparisons per node, and they're n to the k nodes, so it's, so it's the order of 2 to the k times n to the k. Now, this is not a straw man. This is not some uh, um, naive algorithm. This is, this is using all the power that we developed for the pairwise comparison, and we're just generalizing it. And so this is actually a hard problem. This does scale exponentially with k, and, there are, and, it's, and it's not like we only want to do k equals 2. There are very good reasons for inferring structure or function without, without experiments, just from sequence. And the larger k is, the, the more you can ex explore. It's like doing a, a huge mutagenesis experiment and exploring uh, viable mutants. So we want to do multi-sequence alignments. So how do we deal with this? This is the, deal, the way we deal with most uh, non-polynomial uh, calculations. That is to say, in this case, exponential, um, which is we approximate. Now, you can get something that's very close to the true optimum um, if you know how to prune this hyperlattice. Remember, it, one of the examples I showed was you could take this band. If you know where the band should, should start and how wide it should be, you can essentially prune off many of the nodes without really losing uh, any uh, optimality. But you have to be very sure you know where to start it and how wide it should be. Um, so it's, it's optimal within those constraints. Then there are others which are more heuristic. They are not guaranteed to be optimal, but on the other hand, they don't necessarily require arbitrary pruning. And the, the two that we'll illustrate in, subs in the next couple of slides is a tree alignment as, it, as illustrated by cluster LW. By the way, pruning is illustrated by a program called MSA, which is short for multi-sequence alignment. And we'll show a star alignment. And then uh, when we get later on in the, the transcriptome part of the course, uh, we will talk about the Gibbs algorithm. Uh, so let's walk through cluster W and then uh, a star algorithm. So here's progressive multiple alignment. And I think most of you, if I had given you the luxury of just thinking this through uh, uh, during the break, uh, how you would do the multi-alignment, this might be the algorithm you would come up with. What you, all, almost always, it makes sense to start with the pairwise alignments, because that is a solved problem. We have fairly good scaling for that. And so here you take each of the, uh, let's say, four sequences and do all pairwise alignments. And you get this four by four matrix. It's going to be uh, symmetric, so you only have to do the diagonal and the off-diagonals on one half of it. And, uh, and you get the, gr the best score is S1 with S3, which has a score of 9. And so, so if you now, you can construct a tree 
And this is basically, we're starting to describe the method by which we construct a tree, such as that tree of life that I've shown uh, a couple of times now. And so when you construct a tree, you take the two closest scoring sequences and you indicate them as, as terminal branches of the tree and you connect them by uh, uh, to a, 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 a fork, a branch point. And the, the uh, distance of each from the common ancestor is, is indicated by the length of these lines. And so the second best score is S2 and S4. It's a little bit weaker similarity than S1 and S3, so you have these longer branches indicating greater divergence. And they're, on their, they're in their own cluster. Now, it turns out that, that the, uh, then the common ancestor for all the sequences, which would be the common ancestor of the common ancestors of the first two clusters, is represented by this final um, uh, branching closest to the trunk of the tree or the roots of the tree. Okay. So that's, uh, and here distance is, the, is this uh, horizontal axis. And so that's a, so, so then to, uh, then once you have this dendrogram, the next step, it, or the full steps are aligning each of the, the sequences, which you already had to have done in order to calculate the similarity matrix. And again, these are a pairwise alignment of S1, S2, S2, and S4. These are one, steps one and two were already done to get the similarity matrix. Now step three is new. You align this alignment, we'll call it uh, the pair S1, S3, with the pair S2, S4. And you could imagine keeping doing this hierarchical process if there were additional sequences which were even more distant related, let's say S5, you would, you would take this alignment of S1, S2, S3, S4 and align it with a single sequence S5. Okay? So you can see how you can align not only sequences, but you can align uh, pseudo-sequences which have these little indel dashes in them. Okay? So that's one method. This is a different method. And here the... the premise is that you've got one sequence which is sufficiently close to all the other sequences that you can use it as an anchor sequence. And whatever indels you put in individually, paralyzed of that sequence, uh, can be propagated throughout the entire multi-sequence alignment. So here we start the same way. Um, here we have five sequences instead of four, but it's the same thing. You do all pairwise uh, similarities and you give a score. These scores are the scores that would have come out at the end of that traceback in the pairwise alignments. So this is not a pairwise matrix. This is the results of, of uh, you know, 5 times 4 over 2 pairwise alignments. Each of these boxes itself is the outcome of a full matrix on S1 versus S2, for example. And you can see from these, these set of scores that the best score, uh, or the, the best set of scores for any sequence is S1, has the best score to S2, and it has the best score overall to all of the sequences. And so we'll use S1 as the focus of the star geometry, and we'll say, okay, uh, let's compare every, we've already compared every sequence to S1, we've compared every sequence to every sequence, but let's focus on that. And now take wherever the indels were that were required to get the best score for S1 with each of the others, and, and have S, S1 be in red, uh, in each case, and uh, use that as the anchor. And so then in the multi-alignment, you take all the indels relative to the red one and uh, you, you introduce them so that uh, it's the anchor. 
So those are two radically different ways, and, and uh, we'll get to the Gibbs sampling later. But the Gibbs sampling, just in, in a nutshell, is in general when you have a hard problem where you can't sample the entire, where you can't comprehensively go through the entire space, what you do is you sample it. You say, let's try a few things and try to randomly sample it and maybe even uh, develop locally if, if, if after randomly sampling if certain places look better, then look uh, near there and find uh, other solutions and keep optimizing. That's the Gibbs in a nutshell. Now, we have uh, explored the space-time accuracy trade-offs. If you can't, uh, you can improve time by having this storing this uh, pairwise or multi-sequence in a matrix. So that's actually, you've done a trade-off where you've taken up computer memory in order to save time. Um, and then if you're willing to sacrifice a little accuracy or a little comprehensiveness, then you can uh, save even more time or memory. Now we want to find uh, use motifs, which is the sort of thing that you get out of local alignments, to find genes. Um, and we're going to use the, the motifs in the finding genes as a way of introducing a particular motif, which is a CG motif, um, as, a, as a simple example of a hidden Markov model. Now, how do we find genes? Genes have little bits of sequence uh, at the beginning, the middle, or the end, which are distinctive. They have distinctive properties, typically sequence properties. So at the beginning of the gene, before the protein coding region or, or RNA coding region, you'll have uh, regulatory elements such as promoters and so-called CG islands. Now remember the CG islands because that's what we're going to use to illustrate the HMMs. But CG islands are basically uh, an abundance of the CG dinucleotide. Of the 16 different dinucleotides, CG happens to be underrepresented in general invertebrate genomes and overrepresented in promoter regions upstream from genes. <clears throat> and the reason is probably that they bind to transcription factors and the transcription factors protect them uh, from methylation and, and thereby protect them from uh, a mutagenic process that, that, that would otherwise cause them to become a TG. Now, that's one, that's the uh, example of a distinctive sequence element that indicates the beginning of a gene or just before beginning of the gene. Within the gene, especially, to, uh, well, only if it's a protein coding region, you'll have preferred codons. These are preferences that are set by the particular abundances of transfer RNAs in the cell as well as other constraints on those sequence. If, if you're in an organism that does RNA splicing, you'll have RNA splice signals and they'll have distinctive um, sequence features. You'll have, uh, if, it, if you have RNA splicing, then you will have to maintain the translational reading frame across the splice junctions. That's a hint. Um, when you, if you have uh, multi-sequence alignments, then you can look for conserved positions in interspecies conservation. If you have, uh, the ultimate cheat is if you have uh, uh, a uh, cDNA uh, in the case of species that are spliced, then you can figure out the splicing just empirically by the presence of uh, 
uh, actually sequencing the messenger RNA that encodes your gene. So you know there's a gene there because you found it present in the messenger RNA population and you sequenced it. Now there are problems with each of these approaches. Um, promoters in CG islands are sort of degenerate. They're uh, weak signal sequence signatures. There's a high variety and they're used in combinations. When we're looking at preferred codons, we need a lot of codons in a row to see a preference over random sequences. Random sequences will also contain some of the same codons. And, the, and if you need longer ones, then you'll miss tiny proteins. And we'll talk about this in, 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 in just a moment, uh, specific examples. Similarly, for RNA splicing, you can have uh, weak motifs again. And alternative splicing, it's not like there's one specific splice that occurs in a particular gene segment. There can be multiple kinds. Um, Conservation requires that you have the right species that are the, that at least some of the species in the multi-sequence alignment are, are just the right distance, not too close, not too far away. And cDNAs are great if you have them, but if you have very rare trans, you need to have the cell type and the, and the rare rare cell type, rare cell, uh, rare messenger RNA within a cell type. Okay, so let's talk about the sizes of proteins. If you look here, I... Uh, uh, plotted the sizes of proteins in annotated genomes. Two of the first annotated genomes, the, the smallest eukaryote yeast and the smallest prokaryote mycoplasm, uh, and asked what were the sizes of, of the proteins that are annotated. Proteins in quote because these are this is what uh, humans and computer programs together chose to represent. This is not truth, necessarily. And you can see it goes out to over 900 amino acids. And if you go to humans, this would go out to uh, tens of thousands of amino acids long for the largest proteins. But let's, let's focus attention on the smallest proteins. How is it that it precipitously drops off uh, at 100 amino acids? Why are there so few proteins um, that are short? And there's slightly more... Uh, short proteins in mycoplasm. Any guesses why there's so few? Why does it drop off at 100 amino acids? There are more, but we can't find them. Right. There, there probably are more. And it's not that we can't, it's that the annotators chose not to. Uh, and why did they choose not to? They had a, they just agreed that they would stop at 100. That was getting too short. And this plot kind of illustrates why. Here, every genome has its own GC content, its own codon usage and so forth. Here we're just talking about just the first order uh, percentage of uh, GC versus AT. And the genetic code sort of theoretically and, and is observed to restrict genomes so that they really can have a minimum of 25% GC content, say 28%, and a maximum of 75%. And essentially all genomes fall in that range. And yeast is around 39% or so. And then if you plot, okay, uh, stock codons tend to, be, tend to be made up of A's and T's. The stock codons are TAG, TGA, and uh, uh, TAA. So if you have an AT-rich genome, you're going to tend to have a lot, you tend to run into a stop code on it random quite frequently. So if you have a long open reading frame in an AT-rich genome, that's very, 
you know, if you have a modestly long open range limit, that's very significant AT-rich genome. But if you have a GC-rich genome, then you can go for a long time at random without running into stop turns, so it's less significant. So you need to have more codons in a row in a GC-rich genome in order to convince yourself. So you used to somewhere in between, and, if you, and this, so you can see that this, there's this general trend, you need to have more codons in a row to convince yourself as the GC content on the horizontal axis goes higher. And, uh, and yeast, basically the, the, the place where you start getting too many false positives is around 100 amino acids, and so that's why the community just decided to cut off there. When we get to proteomics, we'll talk about ways that you can empirically, by mass spectrometry and so forth, find those small proteins, and genetically, of course, you can find them. Well, let's talk about the most extremely small ones and ask whether these most extremely small open reading frames uh, are interesting. And I think they're very these extreme examples are very interesting. Uh, so the smallest that I know of is a pentapeptide, uh, which is actually encoded in not just one, but many different phylogenetically diverse large ribosomal RNAs. So here, ribosomal RNA normally acts as part of the translation apparatus, but here it is acting as the messenger RNA as well. Okay, separate, presumably a separate molecule, maybe possibly a degraded version of it. But in some way or another, the 23S RNA encodes this pentapeptide, which is not just some junk, you, know, you can have junk DNA, you can have junk peptides, but this one actually confers erythromycin resistance at low levels in wild type. It is not a mutant that pentapeptide, it's the, the normal pentapeptide. Okay, now here's three examples that are related to one another. They, uh, they have somewhere between 14 and 16 codons, and they have this very strange amino acid composition when you, when you do the translation conceptually in the computer. They either, they have, remember tryptophans were a rare amino acid? Well, here's two of them in a row. That's pretty unusual. Here's uh, seven phenylalanines in a short stretch, and here's seven histidines right in a row. This is really bizarre. And what's furthermore gets even more conspiratorial because these, these seven histidines in a row happen to be the next gene down is a histidine biosynthetic gene. And not only that, but about eight histidine genes in a row come after that. So, and the same thing with phenylalanine upstream of phenylalanine biosynthetic genes and the this weird excess of tryptophans is upstream of tryptophan biosynthetic genes. So what does this all mean? What it means, probably, uh, and there's actually quite a bit of experiments on this, is that this is a feed, uh, an excellent feedback loop where you want to do feedback at, in the most uh, relevant way. So here, the, the, if you want to know whether you need to make tryptophan phenylalanine histidine, you ask whether there's enough of it around to do translation. That's very relevant. And so this has to be sensing the translation process itself. It's asking whether the transfer RNAs are charged up with amino acids enough that you're getting efficient translation. If you're not, then you'll pause here. The ribosome will hesitate, waiting for the right transfer RNA. And uh, as it hesitates, this RNA changes its folding, and a series of events results in, uh, if it's hesitating, then it wants to make the biosynthetic genes downstream to make more of the amino acids so the tRNAs will be charged up. So you get this nice little feedback loop that the hesitation causes a change in RNA, which causes a change in transcription, and you make more of what you need. 
So I think these are uh, interesting examples, and, they, and of course, these uh, this kind of if you were look if you knew in advance you were looking for runs of histidines, that would be great. But uh, for other open reading frames, there may be a different story, and so you you need to have methods for looking for very short uh, motifs. So let's go back to the bigger question of motifs and ask how do we deal with them more rigorously? And the way we deal with them more rigorously is uh, uh, is these profiles. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to take a multi-sequence alignment. You now know how to do multi-sequence alignments. And we now want to capture that information and say and make and deal with this position specific profiles. Remember I mentioned that Cyblast and, uh, and other algorithms, you, you, you acknowledge that you don't have a generic substitution matrix for all positions in all proteins or all nucleic acids. You have a different substitution matrix for every position because one position might be, say, an alpha helix. We have one substitution matrix and another one might be in a coil. Okay? So here you have, this is, an ex and this is all about what motifs are all about. Each position has a different set of rules. So the first position in this tetranucleotide, it doesn't care what it is. It can be A, C, G, or T. These are four different sequences, real start sites that we've aligned, either manually or by computer. This is dead easy um, to do the alignment, but, it's, but, you want, but the interpretation here is the position upstream of the start codon doesn't matter. So, you, so your matrix down below is A, C, G, and T each get a 1, which is a count. We could do it in terms of frequencies, percentages. We're doing it in terms of counts here because that's a, just a restatement of the data. The T and the G position at the, at the 3 prime end of the codons are in this small sample uh, invariant, and so they get a count of 4 for the correct base and a count of 0 for all the alternatives, A, a C, and G, for example, instead of the T. And the A position is not quite invariant in this sample. It, uh, GTG is a perfectly good start codon um, in, say, one sequence in 10 or one in 4 in this case. And so you get uh, 3 and a 1. So this is the weight matrix or posi position-sensitive substitution matrix. Uh, this is more precise than, say, a consensus sequence or a single sequence from the sample. But it's not the most precise way of representing this. It's position sensitive, but we've lost the higher order correlations between positions. In other words, we've lost the dependencies of adjacent bases or bases that are a few, you know, a few bases away. But let's see how this plays out. This position sensitive, this is another way of representing it is in terms of, is an information theory version of this, where the full height of each of the bases is two bits. And you can, uh, the, it's the same two bits we talked about in the first lecture that, that uh, you know, since there are four bases. And this is the same motif, ATG, the, the T and G were invariant in this larger sample, or nearly invariant in this sample size of now, instead of just four, but more than a thousand sequences. And again, a and G were the predominant uh, ones. You can see a little bit of a T there in the first position. And then the base just upstream from the ATG is, is, is almost completely random. And so its information content is close to, to nil. And so it's zero bits. 
Now, if you now this this is easy enough that you can just do a big search aligning on the ATG, which is a very striking thing, and look to see if there's any other residual information content to either side. And sure enough, you find this little blip of G's and A's, uh, mostly at minus nine relative to to the A of ATG at zero. And it turns out that uh, again, experimentally verified this motif. Uh, so the ATG motif binds to transfer RNA, and the GA-rich motif actually binds to a ribosomal uh, RNA sequence. And so in a, basically the messenger RNA uh, is uh, coaxed into the right position for, to be in the right position of, of the ribosomes where the tRNA can bind to the initiator. Okay? So here's an example where you can... Uh, do a multi-sequence alignment here of thousands of sequences, k equals 1055, remember this is exponential of k, uh, and you can find these motifs that have great biological significance. Now once you've done the multi-sequence alignment and you've derived the, the weight matrix, this uh, substitution position-sensitive substitution matrix, now you want to be able to search the genome for these things. Okay, you've got you know what a start, start motif looks like, you want to find them all. And it wouldn't just be the ATG, it would be this full, you know, including the GA-rich motif. And the way you do that is you now take this weight matrix and ask for each, we're scanning the genome and we, we run into the sequence AAT, AATG. Now, you want to know how good a match is that to this weight matrix which was taken from uh, either four sequences or a thousand sequences. And the way you do it is for each position you ask uh, what was the score in the whole learning set. And now this should be a now independent test set you're, you're trying this out on. Uh, here the learning set and the test set are the same. But you basically have the A is a score of one because, and which is not going to be a big contribution because they were all the same. So um, then the, the second A is a score of 3 and the TNG are a score of 4 for a total score of 12 for this particular tetranucleotide instance of this uh, motif uh, represented by this weight matrix. And then you can see that the, the top three sequences, which all have ATG, have the best scores, and the bottom one, GTG, even though it's, it's a valid member of the learning set, it was something which was underrepresented statistically. Uh, GTG tended to be uh, uh, less frequently encountered than ATG, and so it gets a lower score when you search the genome for it. So if you were to prioritize these, they would be prioritized in this order by 12-12-12-10. Okay, so now the final topic, which talks about a very simple and short motif was this G, which is the CG motif, which we've claimed is overrepresented in promoters, in vertebrates. But before we talk about these very short motifs, let's talk about uh, why we have probabilistic models in sequence analysis in general. And there are three main uses. One of them is recognition. Uh, for example, the recognition that we've been doing is, is a particular sequence of protein start? In other words, does it have a score which is statistically significant? That's basically what we were doing in the pre very uh, anecdotally in the previous slides. Or another task is discrimination. We ask, is 
questions like, is this protein more like a hemoglobin or like a myoglobin? Um, the first question is about one sequence relative to, say, a weight matrix. The other one is about two sequences, asking how, uh, um, or three sequences, whether a particular protein is more like one than another. And in a database search, we would go through, we, a question might be like, what are all sequences in Swiss prot that look like a serine protease? This would be asking for recognition multiple times, over and over. So here is the basic idea, which will, which will be a Bayesian idea soon, in the next slide, is assign a number to every possible sequence such that the probability of that sequence, given a model, so, that's, so, so this jargon here, P of S slash M, it, uh, S bar M, is the probability of, that you would get that sequence giving given a model. So the model might be this weight matrix we've been talking about, or it could be something more complicated. So what's the probability that, that, that we get the sequence ATG given the model, the, weight, the full weight matrix model? And as with any good probability, as we mentioned uh, in the first class, they should sum to one. If you, if you sum the sigma sub s means sum over all sequences, um, then the probability given the model should sum to one. Now, that will be true um, for the P of the sequences given uh, model, summed over all sequences. Um, if we, we can also have the probability of a sequence in your population of sequences irrespective of model. And those should sum to one. And the probability of models in your collection of models irrespective of sequence. And here's a very useful theorem uh, called Bayes' theorem. And this is completely general. It doesn't depend on models and sequences. You could just replace, you could just call M and S, where M and S are just two, two things. And, the, and this is generally true, is that the probability that the model given the sequence is equal to probability of the model times the probability of the sequence given the model divided by the probability of the sequence. And more jargon, uh, but explanation of some of these terms here is that the the probability of the model and the probability of the, of the sequence are prior probabilities. These are probabilities which, do not, which are not conditional. They do not depend on something else. Well, when you have this little bar in the middle, it means that, that you have the probability of the model given the sequence. It's called a posterior probability. Now, let's see what all this Bayesian stuff is useful for, okay? We're going to be doing, uh, of the various applications uh, we had recognition, discrimination, and database search. So here's an example of a database search. We'll have uh, two models. Model that we actually uh, have a hydrolase um, and the model that we have randomness. So uh, we call this the null model or N model. And M is the model that we're interested in, that they're hydrolases. Okay. So we have random bases or random amino acids. This is hydrolase random amino acids. So we want to report all the sequences where um, the probability that that sequence, given the model, is better than that sequence giving a null model or random amino acids, that that is significant, and it's significant by the delta between... Um, 
just the null versus the, the uh, probability of the model in general. So if we, if we look, uh, if we, let's say, take, uh, do a, uh, a database search where we have scoring metrics, just as the ones we developed earlier in the talk, and we score for uh, random sequences, we'll get one distribution in orange. And if we score for bona fide hydrolases, we might get this distribution in blue. And we're, and we're asking whether um, the probability of getting a particular sequence giving the model as a hydrolase is better than the probability of getting that sequence at random, the orange. And, and you want that just to be statistically significant. Um, so you can rephrase this in terms of bits uh, where, and, or in terms of uh, a significance level of a probability of 5%, which is class, typically the case. Now, when we're talking about uh, the probability of a particular sequence, we're where we have, uh, we can have deviations from randomness at the mononucleotide level, at the dinucleotide level, and so on. And just to, just rather than just dump this on you as a, as a mathematical fact, I want to give you some biological rationale for why you can have non-randomness at every order of a Markov chain, meaning every length of sequence. So the first order uh, chain, the lowest order chain, would be mononucleotides, and this would be, uh, you might have a bias um, where C would be rare because the C's mutate into U's, and in organisms that lack a uracil glycosylase, which would then return it back to a C, C's will change into U's because there's a very common chemical reaction, so it's called cytidine deamination, uh, which but, you, but a deoxy U is an abnormal base. It's recognizable as a normal base. And there's repair in most organisms that were reverse it. But there's some that don't. And there's a tendency of those genomes to aim towards high AT content. The C's disappear and hence take the G's with them. Okay. Similarly, many organisms repair, well, the, the a T near a T in the presence of ultraviolet light will get mutated to something else. And if you can't repair that, uh, back to a, a TT sequence, it gets repaired to something else or it gets uh, mutated to something else. And so you'll lose that particular dinucleotide out of the 16 possible dinucleotides. We've already mentioned that CG is rare and the reason is that, that this is uh, methylated for various regulatory reasons. And now, because it's methylated, even if you have the uracil glycosylase, which will which will then, which would then take all the regular C's that turn into U's, deoxy U's, and turn them back into deoxy C's. Now a 5-methyl C turns into a T, and you can't tell that it's abnormal. A T is a perfectly reasonable thing to get, and so every place you got a methyl C G turns into a T G, and you tend to lose the C G's unless they're not methylated. Okay, and we'll get to that. And similarly, you can have rare amino, rare codons, and hence these turn into rare triplets. You can have rare tetranucleotides uh, if you, for example, have a methylase that methylates this pentanucleotide. And every time you see that, every time the bacteria sees this related CTAG 
G sequence and says, oh, that must have been a, one of these methylation deamination problems. Let's fix it up. Let's make it this pentanucleotide. And the CTA G uh, tends to be underrepresented as a consequence. Uh, similarly, very long stretches of A's, not just tetranucleotides, but, but you can get excesses of A's due to uh, the fact that messenger RNAs end in poly A, they get reverse transcribed, reinserted into the genome, and now you've got a poly A tract. Or you can get polymers in general by polymerase slippage. So the, all these things can cause biases, and just I've you know, elaborated on one of them here, which is the, the triplet bias documented here that there's th 10 times lower frequency of AGG than of some of the other arginine codons. Okay. So now let's talk about a Markov model. This is not a hidden Markov model yet. In just a moment, it will be. It's a Markov model because we're asking what is, we're, we're, the columns of, that we had kept independent when we were doing, making profiles or uh, weight matrices, we said the C and the, you know, the, the, the two nucleotides, whether it's CG or AA or whatever, were independent. Now we're no longer going to make them independent. We, we will allow them to be uh, uh, recognized, the codependence. Forget the pluses right now. Just assume, you know, we'll, they'll be explained when we get to the hidden part of this. Uh, so they're hidden for now, okay. But what we're, t we're talking about is, what's the probability of getting an A given an A? We've got an A in the first, in the five prime position. What's the probability now of getting an A dependent on that one? So we're recognizing that, that dependence. Uh, we've said that CGs are, are underrepresented in the genome as a whole, and they're overrepresented in promoters. Okay, so, so this particular transition of what's the probability of getting a G given a C in the, in the five prime position? So this is one of those conditional probabilities. This is a Bayesian that we had set up a couple slides back. And so this particular arrow going from a C to a G is represented by this probability. And you can see going the other way is a different probability. That would be P of C given G. And you can, and these little, these little arrows, these little, that refer to itself is example of a P of an A given an A. So this is an AA dinucleotide. And you can see there's 16 possible transitions, including four, you know, homopolymers, AA, TT, CC, GG, and uh, 12 uh, transitions of, of, uh, of the other dinucleotides. Now, what's, what do we mean by hidden? We've got CG islands where the CGs have been protected from from methylation and hence protected from mutation, so they're fairly abundant. They're involved in, in regulation and binding transcription factors. And these islands are in a, will be a variable length and uh, just have an increased con concentration of CGs. And then outside of them, the ocean, which are not protected, they're not involved in transcription, uh, and they mutate, and they are very low in G CGs. And you want to know where the island begins and ends because that helps you know where the regulatory factors are. So, so now the hidden part is when you, when you will look at a new sequence, you won't know whether you're in an island or not. And so this Markov model that you have has to be different for whether you're in an island or not, but you don't know what you're in. So here is uh, um, the hidden part. So you've got 
a Markov model for the transitions within an island. And so in that case, you get the, expect the CGs to be high, roughly the same as the other dinucleotides, possibly higher. And in the oceans, where they're, where they're lost, uh, you expect the CG dinucle this particular transition from C to G to be low, and most of the other transitions to be normal, uh, maybe taking up some of the slop. So there's, there's 16 in uh, uh, different dinucleotides in islands on the left, and there's 16 in oceans on the right. In addition, there's a whole set of transitions between islands and oceans, right? You have, the genome is not just blocks, they're all connected. And so you, you can make a transition from any of the, any nucleotide in an island to any nucleotide in, in an ocean. And so here's one that's illustrated this dotted brown line where it says probability of a C minus, meaning in an ocean, given that you have an A plus, meaning in an island, in the five prime position. So that would be a transition point going five prime to three prime from an island into an ocean, going from an A to a C. Aren't you glad that I picked a dinucleotide to illustrate this, right? <laughs> okay. Here's a real example. Here's a, an example where I've cut and pasted a very short sequence with only one ocean on the left and one island on the right in bold and uh, capital letters. You're given this as a learning set. Uh, somebody has by hand decided that the boundary occurs at, at this first CG dinucleotide. There are no CGs to the left and there are three CGs to the right. And so when you make this table, we'll call it an A table later on, uh, this A table has the transition from an A in the five prime position to an A in the three prime position. So that's the, that's the PA given A. Um, and here's the CG dinucleotide C to G transition, all in an island indicated by plus. And you can see that's quite uh, frequent. And then below it, let's look at the same CG dinucleotide going from C to G in an in a ocean. And here it's unobserved in this little toy example that I gave you. So it's a zero. So 43% in, in this actual example, and you can work the numbers out because it's all here. Um, and there's only one transition between islands and oceans, and that happens to be a CC, a C in an ocean going to a C in an island, and that gives the point two, and all the rest are zeros. Now, zeros are a problem, both for the CG dinucleotide in the ocean and for the transitions between oceans and islands. And the way you handle it is called pseudocounts. You basically say, what if we just missed finding that thing? We're going to add one to it because however big the counts are, you can always add one, and that would give you some feeling for the, uh, for the uh, uh, you know, that you don't really have zeros there. You can't trust zeros. And there's even a more uh, uh, rigorous way of doing it called Dirichlet, um, where you can do these uh, pseudo-counts. And so you can see, you can actually calculate these conditional probabilities by hand uh, in the privacy of your uh, home, uh, not while the hordes are waiting to get into the room, uh, and you can get you can recreate these numbers with that simple formula there. Now this is a real training set based on 48 known islands, again annotated by some person, and you can see those th this A matrix 
focusing on those things that were 43 and 0 before, now more realistic numbers are 27% and 8% for uh, an island and an, and an ocean, respectively. Now we're going to plug these numbers. This basically, I've cut off the transition tables, which are off to the right. Now let's, now let's use them to actually do an HMM. And the Perturbi algorithm, remember we said dynamic programming is a hero, we're going to end on this. Uh, the recursion we have here, the Viterbi score for, uh, so L and K are the states. The states have two, there are two states, island plus, ocean minus. And I is the, the sequence. Here the sequence length is four, I goes from one to four. And the sequence we're testing is, is CG CG in an ocean or an island? What's your guess? Okay, <laughs> it's a pretty extreme case. But this is actually using the numbers from the previous slide, which were taken from real oceans and islands. And so you start out uh, with, a, with the probabilities being just equally probable that you can start at the sea. So there are eight different states, and so we just divide one over eight is a starting point, or 0.125. And so there are two possible places it can be, and they're equally probable as in an ocean or an island, just given the sea, one eight. Now you make a transition where you multiply this times the A matrix, A sub KL, so, so you're going from state one to state one, from an, uh, from an island to an island. And if you look back one slide, remember there was a 0.27 for go going to a CG, di CG dinucleotide. So you multiply, the, the, the recursion here is you multiply the, uh, this is a emission, which is always one. You multiply the maximum of the previous uh, Viterbi, so I plus one and I times the A matrix, which is in the previous slide, is 0.27. So the previous one was 1.8, and then times 0.27, you get 0.034. And if you were in, if you if you stayed uh, if you started in an, in an ocean and stayed in an ocean, it would already drop to 0.01. So you can see the the better probability is already that you're in an island. And if you carry this all the way out to all four tetranucleotide, you get a much higher probability of being in the island of 0.0032 than being in the ocean, 0.0002. Question? What's the basis for thinking that the context for a dynamic is either an ocean or an island, in other words, only two states? So why couldn't the context be five states? Okay, 